This week on Writers Inc. Um, you don't necessarily see the same kind of ratio of sales associated with virtual events. You know, I think we're all just fatigued early on. It was a different story now, a year into it. Um, you know, maybe a little bit of the magic is worn off. Whether you are traditionally published or indie, writing a good book is only the first step in becoming a successful author. The days of just turning a manuscript into your editor and walking away are gone. If you want to succeed in today's publishing world, you need to understand every aspect of the business. Editing, formatting, marketing, contracts. It all starts with a good book. Then the real work begins. Join international best-selling author J.D. Barker and indie powerhouse Jay Thorne as they gain unique insight and valuable advice from the most prolific and accomplished authors in the business. The publishing world is changing, adapting. Do you have what it takes to become a full-time writer? If you're willing to do the work, we'll give you the tools. Get your notepad out, school's in session. This is Writer's In. All right, uh, J.D., when's the salon appointment? <laughs> I'm heading out right after we get off the phone. So I, I, I'm shaggy. I, I haven't gotten a haircut in, in like, I, I honestly don't even know, four or five months at, at least now. And, um, yeah, it, it, it's getting bad. Um, so I just I, I, I finally broke down and made an appointment somewhere. Yeah, I'm I'm not gonna be far behind you. I'm I'm over a year, and I definitely need a trim. <laughs> Is it weird that I cut my hair like every two days? <laughs> I I'm just shaving my head in the shower count. Um, now, do you have, do you yeah. have one of those cool electric razors to shave your head? That's like no, designed I for. Just for... A, I just use a, a a razor. Oh, disposable? Yeah. No. Oh, okay. This conversation sucks. Let's talk about <laughs> something else. No, I do have to. I, I do have to get my beard cut. I do, but I haven't done that in a few months. Oh, that's a much so. better conversation. Let's talk about your beard instead of your razor. Let's not. Let's not talk about that. <laughs> At this point, it's, his beard could have its own podcast. That's getting so long. <laughs> you, know, know. you almost can't see it in the video. Yeah, it's going to be. Jay's not the far behind me though. It's getting there. Yeah. All right. So now we've alienated right. just about everybody. Uh, <laughs> hey, I wanted to kick something, you guys. Uh, talk about this it was an article that someone alerted me to on rolling stone the title is called in computero hear how ai software wrote a new nirvana song here's the gist of it uh there's a team of that are of people who created these computer generated artificial tracks by Jimi hendrix amy winehouse jim morrison and nirvana and i listened to the nirvana one and it was absolutely horrifying. And I don't mean because the AI was bad. <laughs> I mean because it kind of sounded like Nirvana. And I don't know what so, you guys are thinking about this. Yeah. So you you sent me this a few days ago, and I was like, I'm going to try something. Because I told you that um, you know, I recently read a book called uh, Homo Deus, which is about the future of humanity. And one, there's a part in there where they, they talk about this. They had like a, a famous composer. I, I can't remember the whole study, but... Basically, at the end of the study, they brought in like 200 people and let them listen to like an AI track, something that was uh, composed by someone for real and then like a Beethoven track or something. Overwhelmingly, people thought the AI track was the real one. Um, so uh, I yesterday, actually, um, I, I was like, I'm going to try something. So I had that on my I went up, uh, my wife. I was like, hey, you're a big Amy Winehouse fan, aren't you? I was like, have you heard that they that they, they released a new track from her that they found? And I played it, and she's bobbing her head. She's like, this is really good. Like, this is awesome. And we get like, I don't know, I let like a, a course or two go through. And then I said, you want me, you're ready for me to blow your mind? I was like, that is not Amy Winehouse. It's like, that's a computer. 
and she was floored like and and it was i was like wow that because i thought the 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 nirvana one i thought was like you could like even i feel like even if i knew it wasn't a like if i didn't know i felt like i something would have felt off but like the amy winehouse one really sounded like her a little more i thought um but the other thing to think about with that, even when I'm saying, well, the Nirvana one seemed a little off, that's now. It's only going to get better. And it's going to be like, I mean, and you're, from what you're saying, you felt it was pretty indistinguishable. And, and I thought it was really close. I mean, here's the, here's the question. Like, okay, this is music and this is now. Yeah. What if in five years from now, some company can take 12 Stephen King novels, feed them through an AI, and crank out novel yeah. after novel after novel. What does that do to the horror genre market? Well, that's, yeah. it's, all, it's all coming. I mean, honestly, when I listened to those, it, it, to me, it sounded like a Nirvana demo. Yeah. Um, you know, like it just wasn't quite mastered to the, to the level of, of an album. And the, whoever did the vocals like that, he was no, no Kurt, Co, uh, Co, Kurt Cobain. Um, but the, the, the chord changes, everything else, I mean, that was all spot on. And, and, you know, if you think about it, you can take, you know, like their best songs and plug all that into a computer. That computer can analyze those, figure out exactly what chord you know, progressions are you know, the ones that resonated best with readers and actually caused some of those things to be hits. Like they, they can actually figure it out. Like we, you know, we hear, we hear a song and we like it, but we don't necessarily know why it's catchy or why you know we're humming it an hour later a computer might be able to make those connections and that's the part that really frightened me but i'm, I'm with zach like there, there was i think three or four different tracks on that particular article and the amy winehouse one was the one that really got me because that yeah. it, it, everything about that felt like you know hey we just found this tape you know in, in her apartment you know a box from her apartment or something and hey, you want to give it a listen like it sounded like something that could have come out of her um and, and, and that's some scary stuff yeah and it, i mean they said that most of this was was machine generate generated vocals yeah well, it's going it's going further right before we got on a, a friend of mine from my writing group in pittsburgh sent me an article um and the, the headline is scientists designed first system to help film screenwriters produce storylines with best chance of box office success so like they're literally relying on computers now to create a blurb and and, and backtracking from there like you know here, here's the blurb this is going to sell and, and then people are jumping behind that and, and you know writing scripts if it's a, you know seems like a viable idea you know, like it's it's taking like the the creativity out of, out of things like and, and i think what's could possibly end up happening is like that creativity could dry up you know like where people you know normally have to sit around a room and brainstorm these kind of things like if it starts coming down to computers doing it we're going to start relying on that and then that that entire you know creative process is going to shrink right i mean and you think about zach's wife who is a fan of amy winehouse and was fooled by that now right yeah. so like imagine the masses who don't really care like, do they care if it was really Amy Winehouse or not? Like, not only will they not know, the question is, will, will they not care? And, and I think, like, what worries me is that there's a difference between using the AI as a tool. Like, I can almost see the pitch thing being a tool, but that's different from creating the end product. And I, I don't think we're that far away from that. Well, here's what's interesting, too. I just pulled up, actually, my book notes from that book, Homo Deus, too, and, like, you know, this is not even, like, these algorithms are getting so crazy. This is not even... Um, limited to just creative jobs either. I mean, I know that's what we're talking about here, but like, just to give a couple of examples, like there's a this uh, this company it says by 2033 that like insurance underwriters, there's a 99% chance they're going to be able to be replaced by AI, a 96% chance for chefs, 72% for carpenters. Like, I mean, this this really it's just amazing like where these algorithms are going and like you can debate all day whether it's a good or a bad thing and i think that we can make a lot of arguments that a lot of this stuff is negative but 
it's coming. There's nothing we can like. The, people are working on this stuff, and it's inevitable. It, it sounds know? like the, the only safe career out there is designing AIs. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. I mean, I, I think you, you know, in, in our private email exchange, I think I agree with you, JD. Uh, or maybe it was Zach. I don't remember which one of you guys said it, but like, just put me in the matrix in about 1989. That's about <laughs> all I need. <laughs> well, I, like, but eventually, is that where we're headed? Are we all like, I mean, because virtual reality worlds are going to get so indistinguishable. Are we is it going to be like Ready Player One or like or something where we're just living in those and 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 that's where you work? Like, do virtual reality jobs take the place of? I mean, it's. And that could be further out, especially, you know, for you two old dudes. Like, y'all might not ever see that in your lifetime. But, uh, you know, me me, me, and J.D., our, our kids might, you know? Well, you know, it's funny. Like, I, I read something, um, I think it was over the weekend, and people are starting to meet in video games. You know, instead yes. of, you know, like businesses meeting on Zoom, they're meeting in an actual video game now. Yeah. Um, just to, to keep the environment a little bit more. They're having concerts so in Fortnite, and it's, yeah. it's, it's crazy stuff. So. I mean, get ready. Like, it's coming. You know, we're, we're yeah, going to have... I mean, wait until you're the avatar. Yeah. Like, because uh, the, the, the stuff being done in virtual reality, I mean, is, is just that is... That's the only thing. Like, imagine if, like, Facebook becomes... You're actually, like, walking up and talking to your friend. You know, like, I mean, that is coming. And, and how are people going to distinguish between living in the real world and that world? And how are people going to... Like, are people going to not want to live in that world, <laughs> you know? Well, just like I said, get ready, man, because we're going to have unlimited uh, horror novels written in the voice of Stephen King <laughs> generated by AI that are <laughs> well, free. So get ready. And that's so weird, too, because, like, you could look at that from two aspects. Like, from the from the idea of a publisher, why would a publisher hire an author at that point when they right. can just put stuff into a computer? But then also, what happens when just any Joe Schmo gets a hold of this and can just, like, throw something together and put it on Amazon? Like... I don't know. It's just, I hope that something gets done to control that, you know, to keep that from happening. But it's, I don't know. Like, well, there's, there's honestly, there's, there's one of two ways that something like that would play out. Either you know, the estate of Stephen King at some point would decide that it wants to churn out a new Stephen King novel or some wannabe author somewhere would feed a system with all of this information to try and capture the Stephen King voice, which is what really sells those books and yeah. you know, slap their own name on the on the cover. Um, you know, because it is a, you know, it wouldn't be a Stephen King book, but if they can capture that voice, you know, which isn't something that could be copyrighted or trademarked, um, and then that voice continues to resonate with people just as it does in his real novels, that that's where I think things get scary. And the same thing is, you know, what we were just talking about with the movie stuff. If that actually works, now all of a sudden you've got a Stephen King AI that is able to write books. People are going to do, you know, the other big name authors. And before you know it, the market is saturated with AI generated books by, you know, the same handful of, you know, four or five authors that we have now, but on a on much bigger, bigger scale. There's a lot of weirdness happening in publishing. Did you guys catch that, that Joe Hill book bub? Yeah. Tell us, tell our listeners about that. We've been talking about that offline too. Yeah, so I think we've all seen, you know, New York Times bestsellers on BookBub. That's been going on for the last couple of years. But this was the first time I think I've ever seen a book bundle um, by a, a New York Times bestseller. So it was four uh, Joe Hill novels. You know, he's, he's only got, I think, five or six of them out there. But, um, you know, it was four of his biggest all bundled together for, I think, either three ninety nine dollars or, or four ninety nine. dollars 
um, which is a that's like that's a game changer, um, you know, because you got to you know, it's obviously for him and for his publisher, it's going to generate a lot of revenue, you know, as a quick drop. But you know, what does it do for those sales of the books? And I think indie authors have seen this when you book when you bundle a, a book, you know, it's very difficult to sell them as individual titles again moving forward at any you know reasonable price. So does that mean that we're going to see New York Times bestsellers now bundling books together like this, three or four of them for a couple dollars, and then you know the ultimate end result of that is you know the price on their their ebooks in general are going to have to come down because that's what the market is going to demand after getting used to buying three or four books for for three dollars um but seeing new york times bestsellers jumping onto this this particular trend um that that says a lot yeah i don't know if you guys have noticed it but just anecdotally i've seen fewer and fewer indie titles coming through my bookbub notifications yeah yeah i think well all the big publishers i think they're they're there they're they're all over it they know that it's working and um you know book gorilla was one that they actually you know were behind for the longest time rather than bookbub um and now you're seeing a lot of those same titles crossing over onto onto both um and i guess from bookbub standpoint they're going to grab the ones that they think are going to sell the best which means relying on those those new york times bestsellers over you know an indie author out of canada or wherever they're they're coming uh, from on the on the flip side of that though i will say like one thing i've noticed and um, I actually I actually had lunch yesterday with a couple author buddies. Uh, shout out to Robert Crane and C.G. Cooper, and we were kind of talking about this. But it is uh, it I it's been easier to get accepted for a book bub with Kindle Unlimited titles lately. So that kind of also goes against the grain of what you guys are saying. Like I I, I understand what you're like I totally get it, and I've seen the same thing. But um, but I mean it used to be really hard with like a Ku title to get a book bub, and it's. I haven't had as much many problems in the last year or so as, as I had. Well, my follow-up to this I, was like, oh. how long will it be before TradPub gets into the KU pool? Yeah, yeah, I think that's point. what's coming next because, um, like, from my standpoint, all my books are in KU, and, and I've never had trouble getting a book bub. Um, you know, so I, I, I know I've, I've heard that before from other authors that you have to be wide in order to get in there, but that's never been the case for me. And that could be because I'm, I'm hybrid and I've got books on both sides of the camp. I don't yeah, know what the, the logic behind that is, um, but it, it's never been an issue. But yeah, I, I think, um, you know, streaming services in general are, you know, everybody is looking at them and, you know, KU for better or worse is, is one of those. And I think the traditional guys are, are seeing a lot of money on the table that they're, they're not collecting at this point. Um, I think it, it might actually be spurred by that merger that we mentioned, you know, with News Corp buying HMA. One of my publishers, you know, HMH is one of the few large publishers out there that does do Kindle Unlimited. Now they're getting folded into HarperCollins. So that's going to mean one of two things. Either HarperCollins is going to have to adopt Kindle Unlimited or they're going to have to nix it. And somebody is probably running those numbers right now and they're going to realize that it is profitable. And I, I think you're going to see it start with them. Yeah. Yeah. By, by the way, just to, just to update you, I, I looked up that Joe Hill book, and as we record right now, it's still three ninety nine, and it is one fifty six in the Kindle store. Which okay. Is, I mean, you sent it to us a few days ago, so that's it's sticking very well in the, in the yeah, Kindle. Yeah, the, the highest I saw it was thirty five. Um, you know, which, which is strong, you know, for sure, yeah. for sure. But then, you know, it's 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 not it's being treated the same as any other book bub. You know, it's it's got that nice little spike, and you're gonna see it slowly, you know. Tickle uh, trade, but one fifty six after a few days is still really, really good. Yeah, yeah. Wow. He, okay. Well, we so we got our we got our mandatory Stephen King mention in with a, uh, <laughs> a a Joe Hill honorable mention. So should we take care of some business and then we can get to the interview? 
I want to throw one more thing out yeah. there only because I, I just ran across there's a new app um, that I just started getting notifications for. Um, it's called Likewise. Um, I don't know if you guys have seen this yet, but they're crowdsourcing book, TV, and film recommendations. Um, so this is one of those scenarios where you, as an author, you know, you may want to get out there and if you know, just grab your username, you know, to make sure you get it before somebody else does, just in case this one takes off. Um, but there's definitely, I don't know who created it, but there's a lot of money behind it because I, I see a lot of marketing stuff popping up everywhere for it. Hmm. All right, good to know. Alrighty. Okay, so uh, let's give a shout out to Kobo Writing Life, our wonderful sponsors, Tara and her team up there. I want to say over there. They're up there, I guess, technically from us. Uh, at Kobo, you get to set your price, keep all your rights. They have wonderful promotions. And you can do all of that without being exclusive to any certain platform. So if you want to know more or if you're considering publishing wide, go to KoboWritingLife.com and check out everything they have to offer. Also want to give a shout out to all of our patrons over at patreon.com slash writers Inc podcast. We really appreciate the support. Uh, and thank you very much for that. So JD, who do we get on the docket today? Today we have our very first recurring guest, uh, Alma Kutsu. Um, she's got her, her, her latest op novel out called red widow, um, which is a spy novel. And it, I finished it over the weekend. It, it's great. It's one of my, my favorite spy novels. I think I probably read in the last 10 years. Um, and I think a lot of that authenticity that's in that book just comes from the fact that she used to be a spook. Um, I don't know if we're allowed to say that anymore. That might not be politically correct. She used to be an operative for the CIA. Um, <laughs> That, that, that sounds even crazy. You're offending um, ghosts by calling her a spook, so be careful, man. <laughs> yeah, r really cool person, and she obviously pulled from her knowledge pool when she put this one together because it's, it's my favorite of hers so far that, that, that I've read. Um, I can't wait to hear what she's got to say. Nice. Well, that says a lot because the deep was pretty damn good. Yeah, and so is, so is the hunger. Yeah, yeah. So cool. here she is, Alma Kitsu. Well, welcome back. I think you are officially our first second appearance guest i'm so honored thank you <laughs> how are you alma good a little tired it's been a busy launch week which is um it, it feels very different than previous launch weeks so i'm very grateful for that how how tired i am <laughs> yeah and uh we appreciate you coming on uh fighting through the fatigue because we definitely want to talk about uh, about this and kind of dig deep on it uh, Red Widow came out uh, a few days ago as we're recording this. So give us sort of the overall impression, overall vibe of what's going on. Well, you know, it was a little risky because most people, if they know me as a writer, they know me as a writer of historicals and horror and supernatural and all that kind of stuff. So a spy novel is very different. And if, if people have heard anything about it at all, they know it's because I had worked in intelligence for over 30 years. And so it was something I always wanted to do. But you know, as a writer, um, you know, doing crossing genres is, is very tricky. It's a marketing thing more than anything else. I do think most authors would probably love to write in multiple genres, but it's just hard to know if readers are gonna follow you. And it's hard for bookstores to know how to position you because your books are all over the bookstore. This has come up several times already in uh, the bookstore events that, you know, they've, they've mentioned that. So there's a lot of challenges to it, but um, I've been really just so grateful that so far this week, the response has been great on the book. Oh, that's awesome. Congratulations on that. Uh, can you take us in, into your head a little bit as far as um, the decision? Cause I'm sure that wasn't a decision you, that you made lightly to, to kind of uh, write in a new genre. Can were there stages? Was there someone who convinced you? Did you have to convince yourself? What did that feel like? 
well, you know what? I'd always wanted to write a spy novel. You know, that first book, The Taker, took me 10 years to write. And while I was writing it, I did try writing spy novels. But a couple things, you know, my heart wasn't really in it. And um, uh, to a certain degree, I think. And, you know, my head was in my career at that point. And, and we can talk about that a little bit. I think it, it is really hard to actually write a book about something you know really well, write fiction about something you know really well. And we can talk about why that that is the case. But, um, and, and um, you know, once, as I said, once you kind of get in a genre, it's hard as from a business perspective to think about switching, but you know, I, I'd always wanted to do it. And so a few years back, I was talking to my editor, um, Sally Kim at Putnam, and she said, you know, why don't you try it? And so I thought, you know, this is something I'd love to do. And if, but I questioned whether or not I had the, had it in me to really come up with a, a really engaging story. Cause in that interim too, since I was working on them before I was published and today, you know, the whole thriller genre has gotten so much trickier and, you know, crowded and, you know, readers have really high expectations and I wasn't sure I could meet them. Mm. Now, JD talks about uh, using, I think he uses the term suspense and in, in so that he doesn't box himself into horror or thriller. Um, were there any conversations with either your editor or Putnam about what that marketing approach might look like? We did. We talked a little bit about especially how we would, because, uh, you know, they also publish my historical horrors. So how were they going to try to, you know, not inadvertently signal that I wasn't doing that anymore and I was doing this. And I don't know that we necessarily squared the circle there, you know, that we've broken the code on it. Um, you know, it's too soon to tell. I've gotten a little bit of feedback. Certainly some of the readers who've known me for The Hunger in the Deep have very kindly followed me over to Red Widow. And I think I'm probably starting to get some people who don't know me at all and just you know I've heard about the book and so they're coming over but um yeah I mean honestly in some respects I feel like I'm not a dyed-in-the-wool thriller writer either I certainly don't think that the hunger and the deep necessarily fall into that category and there's a lot of suspense and almost all books need suspense of some kind so you know that's a great approach that JD has taken but I think unfortunately especially for spy novels that's just how people categorize them. Right. And so, yeah, I'm a little concerned about, you know, are the expectations going to be wrong for the book? I think that's all we do as writers really is worry about stuff, right? <laughs> yeah. Anxiety about things we can't control. Absolutely. Well, you said that, uh, you know, it, your maybe your head was in it, but your heart wasn't, or that it was difficult for you to write a fictional story that was so close to what you were doing on a, on a day-to-day -day basis. Why is that the case? Well, you know, I think people who like spy books and films and TV and everything have developed certain expectations about what will be in those stories. But the truth is, is that they're very different than what the actual job is like. You know, um, people are kind of surprised when I say this, but when you think of like your typical spy show, for instance, or even spy thrillers, you know, where it's about that lone 
you know, hero who's doggedly chasing the villains and it's him against them, you know, and no one else can do it but him. And it comes down to, you know, him bursting into the room and grabbing the bomb and throwing it out the window and then beating the bad guy up by himself. If that happened in real life, we would call that an intelligence failure. <laughs> if you get to that point, where success depends on one unlikely person, right? Doing all these things alone. That's not what intelligence is trying to do. We're trying to look so far out and to come up with this complex yet subtle plan so that people around you don't know that you're trying to change the course of events or something, right? It's nudging and tweaking. And when you're in it, you see it, you appreciate it, you know how hard it is. Um, you know, you can't talk about it. And so it's a little frustrating because people say they want a story that's true to life, but, but I'm, you know, it's probably not dramatic enough for them, the true to life stuff. You know, and you see some writers, especially of spy novels, who've done an excellent job at doing that, like John Le Carre, you know, just superb at that sort of thing. Um, and he still has an audience to this day. And while there are others, and I think their work is admired, if you looked at the books that make the bestseller list these days, those aren't those types of books. So for a writer, and since this is a podcast for writers, you know, these are all parts of the equation when you think about what kind of story am I going to put together? Who's my audience? How will it be positioned? You know, all these things, you've, you've got to think about it if in, and think in terms of what your goals are as a writer. It sounds like you're saying there's some dissonance between what happens and what the reader expectations are. So how do you cross that chasm? It, that was very scary. And it was always in the fore of my mind as I was writing Red Widow. And um, what's been very, very um, satisfying is the feedback I've been getting so far, even though the book's only been out a few days. Um, you know, feedback both from booksellers who've read it and other writers who've read it, but especially from my former colleagues <laughs> who've read it. And they've all said the same thing, that you can really feel like this book feels like the most authentic, like what's, what I'm describing that's happening at Langley is exactly how it feels. And yet it still has, you know, the stakes are there and there's enough going on back and forth, enough suspense, so that as a reader, you keep turning the pages and you're not, and you're not bored by it. I've had um, colleagues who've retired, who've written to me and said, this feels exactly like what it was like being in the office, yeah. Wow, that's great. Uh, yeah, I'm just thrilled that it, it, everything I wanted is working. Now, if it'll only sell well, that would be great. <laughs> We're going to get to that. Uh, are you expecting any, any phone calls from uh, undisclosed numbers coming out of somewhere in Virginia uh, about anything that's in this book? No, because you have to vet it with them in advance. Oh. <laughs> when you get a security clearance, one of the first things they make you do the first day of orientation is they slap a non-disclosure agreement on the table in front of you and you have to sign it. And it says for your entire life, wow. if you ever write anything that has to do with the job, you must submit it to them for review. So it went through review and I'm happy to say it, they didn't ask for one thing to be taken out. And that, that was surprising and other Agency people have said it's surprising too, because not that there's any secrets revealed in the book, but like I just said, it is, you know, it is reflective of what the job's like and mentally what you go through and all that kind of stuff. And, um, you know, our adversaries do look for every little crumb that 
gives them more insight into how we do things and sources and methods that sort of thing so i was really surprised but anyway yeah they've they've um they've signed off on it i can't say they've been supportive because they're very careful you know to be neutral about things but former colleagues have definitely been you know very supportive and i'm getting invitations to you know do events for for us retired people <laughs> Were you nervous during that review process? How long did that take? And, and uh, can you talk about that at all? I'm fascinated by it. it, it I was very nervous because, um, you know, like I said, I'd written spy novels before, even though they weren't published and they had to go through pre-pub review before they could be submitted, um, you know, to agents and everything. And so I noticed over the years, you know, between that 10 year period and the 10 years I've been in, in um, being, been published, you know, that's 20 years. So I've watched the pendulum go back and forth and it can be affected by things that happen, you know, like um, for instance, under the Bush administration, people may not remember this, but old timers like me have it burned in our memory. One of our colleagues wrote a book that was very critical of the Bush administration's Afghanistan policy. It was called Imperial Ubris. And it ended up causing this lockdown where, you know, the agency and with some, I mean, they vetted that book and, and it was published after pre-publication review, but it still caused such a backlash from the administration who felt that this analyst was being critical of them, that it caused a lockdown in the pre-public review. And it was very hard to get things out for a little while after that. So you see this pendulum sh shift. Sometimes it's tighter and sometimes it's looser. And I think in the last few years, they've had so many books written by uh, former agency people, both fiction and nonfiction, that um, they've kind of upped their game. Like early on, you know, they would ask you to take out stuff that really you could push back and question, you know, this really isn't classified. This is just, it's a term that's like, say, used a lot already in the public discourse. It's hard to justify being asked to take it out. But these days, I think they're a lot more knowledgeable and a little more surgical. And so when they ask you, I, you know, I think there's a much better reason behind it. So it wasn't bad at all. Um, they also in that 20 year period, they kind of revamped their procedures and they set their own goal for themselves to turn things around in 30 days, if at all possible. And, you know, as an author to wait 30 days to put something on submission would just drive you absolutely crazy. But in the scheme of things, 30 days is not bad. And they actually turned it in and much came back to me in, in less than 30 days. So they really went above and beyond the call of duty there. That's fantastic. Is there any possibility, like let's say something something blows up and now all of a sudden um, your, your novel is, is extremely relevant and maybe not in a good way through the eyes of the CIA. Do they have any sort of final authority to like ask you to to or ask your publisher to put it out of print or any sort of like last options for them? I've never heard of that happening actually. And so also the rules are very different from when you're still an agency employee and when you're retired. And now that I'm retired, I mean, it's very narrow. They can only take, ask you to take out things that are classified, that I are see. actually still classified. So they've had their shot, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if they didn't catch it the first time, gosh darn it, that's just too bad. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I'd love to uh, talk a little bit about the, the marketing nuts and bolts here, whether that's uh, things you're doing or, or things your publisher's doing, because The Deep was coming out sort of right at the beginning of the pandemic. And 
Red Widow feels like it's coming out towards the end of it. I'm wondering if you could sort of compare and contrast these book launches from that angle. Well, yes. <laughs> <laughs> the poor deep. Um, I remember, you know, we were having our final huddle call before I was about to go out on tour for the deep. And um, the pandemic was just over the horizon. People were talking about it, but in America, not quite in the same tones as the rest of the world. And we did question, you know, whether or not we should be more worried about it. The decision was no, go ahead and, and go on tour. And within two days, the, the, you know, Penguin Random House made the corporate decision that they were going to stop all book tours and recall all authors. And it was just like there was a black hole and everything fell in the hole that wasn't the coronavirus. That's all people wanted to talk about and think about. Understandably, everyone's lives were turned upside down. And so even press we had lined up just dried up, right? It, and it was that way for weeks. It wasn't, I think, until about April. I kept records on all this. About April that I think a lot of booksellers and authors and all of us together were sort of figuring out the new landscape and doing a lot of virtual events. Things have changed. It definitely feels more normal right now, um, but there's still some limitations on what you can do. And for instance, um, because we're, most of us can't do in-person events anywhere, you know, we've all learned to do virtual events, and yet virtual events um, that landscape has changed too. You know, because people can watch from anywhere. There's really they've found not as much value perhaps in doing twenty events like there might have been in the past because you were hitting geographic locations. Now people from anywhere can can tune in. So there's diminishing returns if you have too many events. And it, it I think I wouldn't be telling any tales out of school. A lot of people kind of said the same thing. Um, you don't necessarily see the same kind of ratio of sales associated with virtual events. You know, I think we're all just fatigued early on. It was a different story now, a year into it. Um, you know, maybe a little bit of the magic is worn off. Uh, so there are still a lot of challenges when it comes to book sales, I'm afraid. Yeah. Do you see the publisher, have you have you seen the publisher have any sort of light bulb moments um, over the course of the year? So I know like, I would agree. I think there's some Zoom fatigue that has set in. I think people are less likely to show up uh, for virtual events now. But there are little nuggets of wisdom that you've seen the publisher latch on to that, that maybe they can take ahead into the future when it comes to book marketing. Well, we've certainly talked about it a lot. And I know my publisher is very nimble and they're always keeping their eye on how things are changing. Um, you know, it's no surprise for, I think, a lot of publishers these days and a lot of authors, social media is the bulk of what we try to do in terms of outreach and marketing and publicity. And the platforms change so much and what users pay attention to changes so frequently. Um, you know, the best thing is to keep an eye on what seems to be working. It's hard for us on the outside because we don't have access to all the numbers you know, like the publishers do, especially if it's paid advertising on platforms to get a sense of what's working and, and what's not working. But you can kind of, you know, suss that out by watching and seeing what types of things fall away and what types of things get more push behind them. So for instance, I don't know if it's been useful, but I had seen an uptick in the number of promoted stories on Instagram for books, both by publishers and from independent individual authors. And that seems to be holding now. 
but how long that'll hold, I'm not exactly sure. It's a really tough time to try to sell a book. Really, really tough. Yeah, I can't imagine. <laughs> uh, in social media is kind of a big can of worms, I guess, for for lack of a better term, right? There's so many aspects and angles to social media. Are there expectations on you from the publisher as as to what you Alma need to be doing on social media versus what the publisher is doing on your behalf? I think most authors would agree with me in saying, I wish publishers would be a little bit more explicit. I th they generally say you need to do this, um, but they don't give you like marching orders, right? And so then you might feel like you're a little bit in the dark trying to, you know, you're just throwing spaghetti at the wall trying to see what sticks. Um, my particular publisher, Putnam, is part of Penguin Random House, and P Penguin does a great job in trying to prepare its authors. They have an author resource site. They do a monthly newsletter. They make a lot of videos that actually show you like how you do things on a social platform, because some of us really need that step-by-step step step guide for what ends up being sometimes very complicated <laughs> procedures for doing things like saying, getting um, uh, a transcript embedded on your video. You know, you see these trends towards um, images and particularly video are more important. And a lot of people, I know I'm guilty of it. I don't have the sound on most of the time. And so, you know, it takes a lot to entice somebody like me to turn the sound on. So even little things like that, making sure that you're, you know, and the, the author is responsible for so much of it. Penguin certainly takes care and does the best job with their, the social media content they produce, but you know, in parallel, it's up to the author to kind of figure out what they need to generate themselves. And then you're, you know, you're so responsible <laughs> for every little aspect. It's tough. It's a very visual world right now. I, I'd be interested in what other, how other authors feel, but you know, so for instance, Facebook is almost useless now, unfortunately. Twitter's still very good, but it's Instagram and, you know, not just the posts, but reels and Instagram TV and, you know, Facebook video, um, you know, to a certain degree. And, you know, that's a whole another skill set for a lot of us. I can kind of put together a graphic, a static graphic, you know, if you put a gun to my head, but a video, I'm horrible with that. So. Yeah. And I think it's, I think it's, a f probably a fact it's not being ageist but i would have to think that a lot of the most experienced uh authors in the traditional publishing realm have been around for a long time and are not native to social media i didn't grow up with social media i'm sure you didn't either so there's a whole nother there's there's another layer to that too i think if there's expectations on those authors yes and that's that's tough and that's a conversation you know if if you're a, an older individual and you don't particularly like social media, you know, that's a conversation you're gonna have to have and try to have them be candid with you, with your publisher, just what their expectations are. You can hire individuals who assist with social media all the way from just posting for you if, if you have trouble with that to, you know, creating content for you. There's a lot of tools out there that can help you with posting, you know, scheduling, posts that'll go up in the future. And there's great tools that'll help you create content. I think video is kind of the last frontier though. That's just so hands-on. Um, 
yeah, it's a little daunting, I have to say. Yeah. And the funny thing is, is in my real life, my day job is uh, I'm a futurist in technology and I specialize in data analytics and social media, but that's on the like understanding user behavior side of thing, not necessarily as a marketer. And I find it challenging. Oh my God, if you don't want to do this stuff, I can't imagine what it must feel like. You, you you need to talk to my friend Joanna Penn, who is a big futurist. Uh, you two would get along great. <laughs> she would love talking to you. I'll have to connect you guys uh, somehow because you, you would love that. Sounds good. Hey, this isn't a softball question and, and you don't have to blow smoke, but uh, podcasting audio, h- how is that figuring into this equation, if it is? Well, you know, before the pandemic, podcasting was super hot. As a matter of fact, I just did an article for a client who shall remain nameless about how now the forecast is for once the, you know, as the pandemic's coming down, that people, investors are really starting to look at podcasts again. It's it's already a big business. It's going to be a super big business. But under the pandemic, my understanding is the numbers did go way down. And especially in certain categories that hitherto had been quite popular. Because people just, you know, it was very much a commuting kind of thing. And, you know, like if you live in D.C., your commute is at least three hours a day. You got plenty of time for podcasts. And now your commute is 10 seconds. So video shot way up. People were consuming a lot more video content and podcasting. And, you know, I'm not saying for everyone, but in general, you know, the numbers went way down. So um, I haven't invested in podcasting for my uh, the previous two books, which are historically based, I did do some podcast form because I I did all this research, worked out all these presentations for book events, which were heavily dependent on the historical content because I found people were really interested in what was the real history and how did the books diverge. I did all this work and you know, you only get a certain number of people that come to your event and they would always say, wow, that was fascinating. I wish my friends had been here. So I thought, wow, a podcast is perfect for that. So I recorded all this content that, you know, I was using for the book tours and that's still all up on my, um, my website. I tried to do something similar, but in a video format for Red Widow, where I solicited reader questions for what, you know, questions I always had. Here's a, a former spy, ask me anything. And if it's not classified, I'll answer it. So I did a series of videos, but as you know, it's, it's tough getting traction, especially for something that's not a regular show, you know, that's not out on a regular schedule, that sort of thing. So I did it for about a month, but um, I kind of let it lapse because I just wasn't satisfied with the numbers, you know, wasn't pulling in the numbers I'd hoped for, but who knows if the book gets popular, maybe, you know, I can revisit it. Yeah. Well, speaking of popular, uh, any news from Fox? That's That was uh, a great development, right? Yeah, that was crazy. <laughs> <laughs> I, You know, when we were working on getting the book out and making the book sale, I had told my agents, I really feel like this is my one chance. You know, right now with streaming uh, TV, there's so many opportunities for writers. This this should be able to sell. So I really pushed them and they did very well. They, um, we began talking to Hollywood in like July or August, I think. The tricky thing, I didn't find this out till later, was um, 
Hollywood was still very confused as to what the future looked like and when they'd be able to go into production again. So they really weren't buying a lot of shows. And I found out later it was a miracle even that we made the sale, but Fox picked it up and I'm an executive producer with it. So I'm actually involved. We're in active development right now. Wow, congratulations. I'm talking to all these writers and executives at Fox and the same week that the book's coming out. That's why if I seem a little dizzy, that's why, because I kind of don't know where I am at any given time. <laughs> awesome. Congratulations. That's that's really Thanks. good news. Yeah. It's, it's very interesting to see a business that, you know, I really didn't know how, and I still don't know how it works. Don't let me fool you. But um, just to have the opportunity to see something like this completely new. It's mind blowing. Yeah, and, and you'll be able to, I mean, you'll have this education for the rest of your life, right? So you'll know sort of what the, that role feels like uh, for hopefully future books. Yeah, it's, um, it really is very funny. And, and, you know, this is my third career. So I, sometimes I think, do I want a third career? Yeah. You know what, it, it takes a lot to it have does. a career, right? You have to learn a lot and pour a lot of energy into it. And it's like, will I like it enough to you know, want to continue to do this, but I'm really, of course, so grateful to have the opportunity. And the woman who's really running the show, Sarah Condon, who's done a lot of shows and was um, in development at Fox, I'm sorry, not Fox, HBO for many, many years. You know, she's a wonderful, wonderful person to be working with on this. She knows that I know nothing. And yet she's very generous about explaining things to me and being patient with me. She's just the perfect, perfect partner. And so, yeah, I'm getting the best opportunity to see see what television's like. And if I fail, I have no one to blame but myself. <laughs> <laughs> Great. I have uh, one more question we can wrap up with. This is, this is a little bit off the beaten path, but... Uh, I know you and JD are, are good friends and he, he said uh, you were exploring this. I, I definitely want to ask you about it. Any, uh, are, are you still considering a, a cabin in the woods for uh, like a little writing nook or vacation spot? I am in the woods. <laughs> <laughs> it was kind of accelerated with the pandemic. So um, we had bought the property shortly before the pandemic and we were, we were, trying to push the builders to move a little faster. But, you know, we're out here in the middle of nowhere in West Virginia, and there's like three guys who build houses out here, and that's it. So you can only push them so hard. But um, once it was ready, we kind of thought, you know, the pandemic was in full swing. This was during the summer. And we thought, why not just move out there? So you see it behind me, here's one of the rooms. We've been out here for about nine months now. And we just love it. And we're actually going to build a guest house. So for company. So yeah, when people, you know, hey, if, if you need a break, and I don't know how far away you are from West Virginia, but it's a really wonderful place to, to write. And the community is just fabulous. It's mostly Washington people with weekend homes out here. And so there's a lot of uh, creative people, a lot of great professionals. There's another writer, John Copenhaver. He writes mysteries. And we've become great friends. And um, yeah, we're trying to entice more writers to come out here. That's fantastic. Yeah, I grew up in Pittsburgh. And uh, so I'm familiar with West Virginia. It is a hidden gem. There are a lot of people don't know how nice West Virginia is. It's just gorgeous. We back right up to a national forest. It's very isolated, yeah. All right, Alma, what'd you guys think? Uh, lifetime NDA. 
<laughs> yeah, that's the first thing I was thinking about. <laughs> yeah, I mean, can you imagine having to every, every single book that you write having to run it by some government, you know, agency or person, and and having to wait for them to, to vet it like that? That just sounds horrible. Sounds and, pretty you know, dystopian. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's great that it's happening in thirty days that they're able to turn it around that fast. I I just I see her walking into like some giant DMV office that you know kind of looks like that warehouse at the end of Indiana Jones and just standing there with a you know and pulling a number from the machine that says like you know nine million four hundred twenty three on it and having to having to wait. But um, it sounds like they're going through them pretty quick. But that that's got to be nerve wracking. Yeah, yeah, I was thinking the same thing, and I was I, I was thinking Jay knows how much I hate editing. And I was just thinking, like, man, what if they found, like, a major plot point of mine and were like, no, you can't do that. I would just – I don't know. that The waiting would give me – it's hard enough for me to wait for – to come back from an editor. Like, to come back from – and at the agency like that, I would I would have so much anxiety from that. <laughs> well, I'll let you in on a little secret. One of the things that I learned early on in this game is, you know, like every editor, you know, they, they have to come back with some kind of issue with your book, like something that they, they feel has to be has to be changed. I tend to put something in my book for them to grab onto. Like I purposely sneak something in there that I know doesn't quite fit with the plot. I know the editor is going to jump all over it and want to take it out. Um, so I give them something to kind of fulfill that. So I think if I were in Alma's shoes, I would probably do the same thing. I would drop in some paragraph somewhere that somebody's gonna be able to latch on to with their aha moment and and take it out and then everybody feels like they they did what they needed to. <laughs> that's pretty that's clever. Actually, that's actually really smart. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's super super smart. Yeah, we did it. Um, and it's Putnam put out um Dracul, um you know the the prequel to Dracula that I wrote and we actually you know which is almost publisher and one of the things that I slipped in there was a, a letter that Bram Stoker's mother wrote uh, to him about the cholera epidemic and it was like twenty four hundred words. Um, and it didn't move the story forward at all. It was fascinating to read just because of what it was, but like I, I knew for sure that that was going to come out. And I remember telling Dacre, like, this is the thing we got to slip in there because then they'll focus on it and they'll, you know, they'll leave us alone on the rest. And <laughs> sure enough, that's what they that's what they latched onto. You put up a fake fight. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 a little bit. You know, you get, you got to you, you got to raise a little bit of an alarm, but um, yeah, you got to give it to them too. <laughs> oh no! Don't take that out. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, I was I was really surprised. Uh, maybe not. I don't know. Based on the conversation, but uh, you know, I, I would have thought logically that the spy novel would have been her first. It was interesting that it kind of simmered for so long, and it wasn't what she wrote first. I wonder if she got burnt out on it. You know, like I came out of the compliance world. I did that for for you know twenty years, and like I don't think I could have sat down and written a book, written a book about it. Like I, I wanted to walk away from that and put it in the rear view and forget about it as quickly as possible. And you know, I, I think everything gets so glamorized when it comes to the the spy world and CIA and that kind of thing. I think we all have you know we hold it up to a certain level that it, it probably doesn't really. You know, I, I imagine you walk into a CIA office, their monitors are probably old CRTs. They're not, you know, the room's not all, you know, pitch black with, you know, strategic spotlights everywhere. And, you know, it, it's, it, uh, yeah, uh, you know, for Micah tabletops, it, it's probably a very different world in real life than what it is in, you know, in the movies. And it doesn't uh, look like a CSI crime yeah. scene office or something, right? <laughs> yeah, you know, so it's, it's, it could be something like that. I mean, she might have just walked away from that career and wanted to try something different. And, you know, now she's finally getting back to it. But I mean, it, you can you can really see it in this book. I really encourage people to read this one because it it reads very much like an old spy thriller, which I love. You know, there, there's and and very few people like you know she had mentioned are writing those anymore. You know, they're 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 writing you know the Jason Bourne type stuff. But you know, it's the the original Robert Ludlum type spy thriller that's just not there. Nobody's doing that. Yeah, I could see it being. And she talked about this in an interview, kind of piggyback of what you just said. Like, <clears throat> you know, it's very possible that she just was burnt out and. 
you know, I, I could see it being really difficult and frustrating to know what actually goes on, but then have to play into these Hollywood tropes or whatever, you know, and, and, uh, you know, cause I think she's talking about like the, bo- like if the bomb goes off, you failed at that point. Um, you know, so I, I could, I, I'm sure there's like a really hard balance for her to like be entertaining, but also be respectful to the career with knowing what's actually, what actually goes on day to day. So yeah. interesting stuff. Yeah. What did you think about her? What you mentioned about social media? <laughs> Jay's just waiting for me to talk. <laughs> yeah, you can I, I am too, because I know your feelings on social media. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it would be, uh, I, I, you know, and this is something I've thought about, especially as I wanted to pursue traditional publishing, because I don't know what I would say if a publisher came to me and said I had to be on social media because I am so much happier of a person without it and so much more productive. I would probably just hire somebody if it was like, if it was something I had to do, um, then I, I just don't know at this point if I would want to come back and, and do it again and, and, and pretend that I enjoy being on there. You know, I, I think, uh, you know, I, I do, I do think that one thing she said as far as social media, I do think that these more visual platforms and stuff are really, you know, she talked about Instagram and stuff. And I think that those really are, um, TikTok is obviously really popular right now. Um, really kind of taking over Facebook and, and stuff. Um, and, and so I, I do think that that's a really, really good point. Luckily, you know, Instagram is the one that I think I would come back to if I felt like it. So I guess that's kind of a good thing, but, uh, but yeah, that any, anytime the authors bring up, like, you got to be on social media, like your publisher's going to make you, I kind of get a little bit of anxiety. I'm like, I don't know if I want to try for trad pub now, but well, I do that. Cause I'm, I mean, I'm like really, really passionate about not being on there. And it really has, it really has made me a much happier and more productive person not being there. I remember when I first got access to that portal that she was talking about, I got all excited thinking, okay, this is, you know, somebody just gave me the key to the, you know, to Random House's social media presence. And this is going to teach me all these things that I I wasn't able to pick up on my own. And I, and I got in there and there wasn't one single thing that I, I hadn't already seen or figured out. I mean, it was, it was the most basic of basic, you know, more or less, you know, on how to post and how to engage with your fans and things like that. And in all honesty, you know, like, you know, we've talked about this before. I I pay somebody to do 99% of my social media stuff um, because I don't want to take the time to do it. And from what I've learned, like engaging with fans on social media doesn't really move the needle. The only place on social media where it is actually useful is if you can get people to talk about your books in the, in the groups, in the forums, you know, like people actually, you know, like a, a thriller forum talking about your thriller. Um, which is not something you can control. I mean, you can't go in there and say, hey, you guys want to read my book. It's not going to, that doesn't fly. But, you know, if fans are in there talking up your book like that, you know, it's, it's all about word of mouth and, and it can't be coming from your mouth. It's got to be from from other people. And th- that's the real magic formula that people have to figure out or authors have to figure out. Yeah, I, I, exactly. And it's not like it's uh, from my end, it's not like I'm not engaging, you know, like, I mean, this podcast, I mean, not necessarily for readers. This is part of my platform. Like this is, you know, this is, this is part of my social media. And then I, I do, I do all my engagement on my mailing list, you know? So it's not like I'm not engaging with people. It's just like not through that Avenue. Yeah. Let me be clear on that. When, when I say engaging, what I'm really talking about is I, I know authors that will go on Facebook and spend like three or four hours answering every single comment, you know, liking every single thing that's posted about them and responding to every single thing. And the problem is when you do that, as soon as you respond to somebody else, they're going to respond back, you know, so that just, that number just keeps growing and growing and growing, you know, so you can spend four hours and you might talk to a hundred people, you know, if, if you're 
you're lucky you're dealing with 100 people and these are people that have already probably bought your book you know so if you start measuring out those sales numbers versus the amount of time that you're putting in it, it it's just it's not a sustainable model yeah i i was interviewing a, a an upcoming guest this morning and she said you know she she said she's trying to explain to the publisher that the social media doesn't move the needle it it's you know podcasting does uh, you know, because as we as we know, people who listen to podcasts are really dedicated and loyal and they listen to everything like but that's the social media. It's just flitters by, you know, and yeah. it just yeah, I think that's the realization we're all coming to is that, it, you know, it, it really doesn't move the needle except for a, a certain number of authors or authors in specific genres. But generally speaking, it doesn't seem to move the needle. Well, when people are on social media, they're uh, they're and I don't want this to turn into a whole social media thing, but like people are, they're focused on themselves. They're not focused on you. I mean, I've told the story before, and this was this was right out of digital minimalism out of Cal Newport's book, where he said you need to do this because you'll find out. But like, it took six months for anyone to reach out to me and check on me after I left social media, and that's common. Like, if you don't say you're leaving, no one notices. And so, like, it just proves, like, people are just on there, like, for themselves. So, like, I, I don't, like, it just, I agree. It doesn't, I don't, I just don't believe it moves the needle at all. So. I did that at my house and no one noticed either. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. Long time listeners will get that joke. Yeah. Yeah. Zach always makes fun of me because my wife has no idea what I do. So that's the joke. <laughs> I didn't even know. I, I remember we were like six months into our friendship and I go, hey, what's your wife's name? <laughs> like, I was like, you've never spoken about her. I've never seen him leave that attic office of his. So. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I, have to, I can't say anything nasty about her or else she won't let me out for my monthly walk around the neighborhood. <laughs> oh, all right. So, all right uh, it's time to wrap it up. Definitely, yeah, it yeah, we're off Jay's the, wife is lovely for the record. Yeah, we're off the rails now. Uh, who, who do we got next week, J.D.? Next week, Robert Dugani, um, New York Times bestseller, Wall Street Journal bestseller. He's, he's top topped all of them. Um, number one, I think, on, on pretty much all of them. Um, I think he's got roughly about seven million books out out there <laughs> at this point that have, that have sold. So he's 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 been at this for for a little bit. He's got a brand new book coming out. It's the eighth one in his series, and I think it comes out April twentieth. Um, it's called In Her Tracks. I'm really looking forward to, to talking to him. Yeah, I mean, he he in trad, he he puts out what two two sometimes three books a year. Like, yeah, he's a he's a machine, and yeah. I'm still trying to figure out how he convinced them to let him do that. Yeah, <laughs> you know, all, all under one name, you know, because yeah. usually usually that gets divided up. Yeah, excellent. That's going to be a fun conversation. Looking forward to it. Yeah. All right. Well, to our listeners, make sure you go to writersincpodcast.com and grab the free revision masterclass, where you can see the storytelling process from beginning to end. We'll see you next episode, and have a great week of writing. Thanks for listening to this episode of Writers, Inc. Access the show notes and leave a comment at writersincpodcast.com.